Chapter Ten of Nightmare Abbey. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain and is read by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Nightmare Abbey, by Thomas Love Peacock, Chapter Ten. On the evening on which Mister Asterius had caught a glimpse of a female figure on the seashore which he had translated into the visual sign of his interior cognition of a mermaid, Scythrop, retiring to his tower, found his study preoccupied. A stranger, muffled in a cloak, was sitting at his table. Scythrop paused in surprise. The stranger rose at his entrance, and looked at him intently a few minutes, in silence. The eyes of the stranger alone were visible— all the rest of the figure was muffled and mantled in the folds of a black cloak, which was raised by the right hand to the level of the eyes. This scrutiny being completed, the stranger, dropping the cloak, said, "'I see by your physiognomy that you may be trusted,' and revealed to the astonished Scythrop a female form and countenance of dazzling grace and beauty, with long flowing hair of raven blackness, and large black eyes of almost oppressive brilliancy, which strikingly contrasted with a complexion of snowy whiteness. Her dress was extremely elegant, but had an appearance of a foreign fashion, as if both the lady and her mantua-maker were of a far country. "'I guess t'was frightful there to see a lady so richly clad as she, beautiful exceedingly.' For, if it be terrible to one young lady to find another under a tree at midnight, it must, a fortiori, be much more terrible to a young gentleman to find a young lady in his study at that hour. If the logical consecutiveness of this conclusion be not manifest to my readers, I am sorry for their dullness, and must refer them, for more ample elucidation, to a treatise which Mr. Flosky intends to write— on the categories of relation, which comprehends substance and accident, cause and effect, action and reaction. Scythrop, therefore, either was or ought to have been frightened. At all events he was astonished, and astonishment, though not in itself fear, is nevertheless a good stage towards it, and is, indeed, as it were, the halfway house between respect and terror, according to Mr. Burke's graduated scale of the sublime. Footnote. Mr. Burke's graduated scale of the sublime. There must be some mistake in this, for the whole honourable band of gentlemen pensioners has resolved unanimously that Mr. Burke was a very sublime person, particularly after he had prostituted his own soul, and betrayed his country and mankind for twelve hundred pounds a year. Yet he does not appear to have been a very terrible personage, and certainly went off with a very small portion of human respect, though he contrived to excite, in a great degree, the astonishment of all honest men. Our Immaculate Laureate, who gives us to understand that, if he had not been purified by holy matrimony into a mystical type, he would have died a virgin, is another sublime gentleman of the same genus, he very much astonished some persons when he sold his birthright for a pot of sack, but not even his socia has a grain of respect for him, though doubtless he thinks his name very terrible to the enemy, when he flourishes his critico-poetical-political tomahawk, and sets up his Indian yell for the blood of his old friends. But, at best, 
He is a mere political scarecrow, a man of straw, ridiculous to all who know of what materials he is made, and to none more so than to those who have stuffed him and set him up as the Priapus of the Garden of the Golden Apples of Corruption. End of footnote. "'You are surprised,' said the lady. "'Yet why should you be surprised? If you had met me in a drawing-room, and I had been introduced to you by an old woman, it would have been a matter of course. Can the division of two or three walls, and the absence of an unimportant personage, make the same object essentially different in the perception of a philosopher?' "'Certainly not,' said Scythrop but when any class of objects has habitually presented itself to our perceptions in invariable conjunction with particular relations, then on the sudden appearance of one object of the class divested of those accompaniments, the essential difference of the relation is, by an involuntary process, transferred to the object itself, which thus offers itself to our perceptions with all the strangeness of novelty. "'You are a philosopher.' said the lady, and a lover of liberty. You are the author of a treatise, called Philosophical Gas, or a project for a general illumination of the human mind. "'I am,' said Scythrop, delighted at this first blossom of his renown. "'I am a stranger in this country,' said the lady. "'I have been but a few days in it, yet I find myself immediately under the necessity of seeking refuge from an atrocious persecution. I had no friend to whom I could apply, and, in the midst of my difficulties, accident threw your pamphlet in my way. I saw that I had, at least, one kindred mind in this nation, and determined to apply to you. "'And what would you have me do?' said Scythrop, more and more amazed, and not a little perplexed. I would have you, said the young lady, assist me in finding some place of retreat, where I can remain concealed from the indefatigable search that is being made for me. I have been so nearly caught once or twice already, that I cannot confide any longer in my own ingenuity. Doubtless, thought Scythrop, this is one of my golden candlesticks. I have constructed, said he, in this tower, an entrance to a small suite of unknown apartments in the main building, which I defy any creature living to detect. If you would like to remain there a day or two, till I can find you a more suitable concealment, you may rely on the honour of a transcendental eleutherarch. "'I rely on myself,' said the lady. "'I act as I please, go where I please, and let the world say what it will.' I am rich enough to set it at defiance. It is the tyrant of the poor and the feeble, but the slave of those who are above the reach of its injury." Scythrop ventured to inquire the name of his fair protégé. "'What is a name?' said the lady. "'Any name will serve the purpose of distinction. Call me Stella.' "'I see by your looks,' she added, "'that you think all this very strange.' When you know me better, your surprise will cease. I submit not to be an accomplice in my sex's slavery. I am, like yourself, a lover of freedom, and I carry my theory into practice. 
they alone are subject to blind authority who have no reliance on their own strength. Stella took possession of the recondite apartments. Scythrop intended to find her another asylum, but from day to day he postponed his intention, and by degrees forgot it. The young lady reminded him of it from day to day, till she also forgot it. Scythrop was anxious to learn her history, but she would add nothing to what she had already communicated, that she was shunning an atrocious persecution. Scythrop thought of Lord C. and the Alien Act, and said, "'As you will not tell your name, I suppose it is in the green bag.' Stella, not understanding what he meant, was silent, and Scythrop, translating silence into acquiescence, concluded that he was sheltering an illuminé whom Lord S. suspected of an intention to take the tower and set fire to the bank, exploits at least as likely to be accomplished by the hands and eyes of a young beauty as by a drunken cobbler and doctor, armed with a pamphlet and an old stocking. Stella, in her conversations with Scythrop, displayed a highly cultivated and energetic mind, full of impassioned schemes of liberty and impatience of masculine usurpation. She had a lively sense of all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and the vivid pictures which her imagination presented to her of the numberless scenes of injustice and misery which are being acted at every moment in every part of the inhabited world, gave an habitual seriousness to her physiognomy that made it seem as if a smile had never once hovered on her lips. She was intimately conversant with the German language and literature and Scythrop listened with delight to her repetitions of her favourite passages from Schiller and Goethe, and to her encomiums on the sublime Spartacus Weishaupt, the immortal founder of the sect of the Illuminati. Scythrop found that his soul had a greater capacity of love than the image of Marionetta had filled. The form of Stella took possession of every vacant corner of the cavity, and by degrees displaced that of Marionetta from many of the outworks of the citadel, though the latter still held possession of the keep. He judged, from his new friend calling herself Stella, that, if it were not her real name, she was an admirer of the principles of the German play from which she had taken it, and took an opportunity of leading the conversation to that subject but to his great surprise the lady spoke very ardently of the singleness and exclusiveness of love, and declared that the reign of affection was one and indivisible, that it might be transferred, but could not be participated. "'If I ever love,' said she, "'I shall do so without limit or restriction. I shall hold all difficulties light, all sacrifices cheap, all obstacles gossamer.' but for love so total, I shall claim a return as absolute. I will have no rival. Whether more or less favoured will be of little moment. I will be neither first nor second. I will be alone. The heart which I shall possess I will possess entirely, or entirely renounce. Scythrop did not dare to mention the name of Marionetta. He trembled lest some unlucky accident should reveal it to Stella, though he scarcely knew what result to wish or anticipate, and lived in the double fever of a perpetual dilemma. He could not dissemble to himself that he was in love. At the same time, 
with two damsels of minds and habits as remote as the antipodes. The scale of predilection always inclined to the fair one who happened to be present, but the absent was never effectually outweighed, though the degrees of exaltation and depression varied according to accidental variations in the outward and visible signs of the inward and spiritual graces of his respective charmers. Passing and repassing several times a day from the company of the one to that of the other, he was like a shuttlecock between two battledoors, changing its direction as rapidly as the oscillations of a pendulum, receiving many a hard knock on the cork of a sensitive heart, and flying from point to point on the feathers of a super-sublimated head. This was an awful state of things. He had now as much mystery about him as any romantic transcendentalist or transcendental romancer could desire. He had his esoterical and his exoterical love. He could not endure the thought of losing either of them, but he trembled when he imagined the possibility that some fatal discovery might deprive him of both. The old proverb concerning two strings to a bow gave him some gleams of comfort, but that concerning two stools occurred to him more frequently, and covered his forehead with a cold perspiration. With Stella he could indulge freely in all his romantic and philosophical visions. He could build castles in the air, and she would pile towers and turrets on the imaginary edifices. With Marionetta it was otherwise. She knew nothing of the world and society beyond the sphere of her own experience. Her life was all music and sunshine, and she wondered what any one could see to complain of in such a pleasant state of things. She loved Scythrop, she hardly knew why. Indeed, she was not always sure that she loved him at all. She felt her fondness increase or diminish in an inverse ratio to his. When she had manoeuvred him into a fever of passionate love, she often felt, and always assumed, indifference. If she found that her coldness was contagious, and that Scythrop either was, or pretended to be, as indifferent as herself, she would become doubly kind, and raise him again to that elevation from which she had previously thrown him down. Thus, when his love was flowing, hers was ebbing. When his was ebbing, hers was flowing. Now and then there were moments of level tide, when reciprocal affection seemed to promise imperturbable harmony, but Scythrop could scarcely resign his spirit to the pleasing illusion, before the pinnace of the lover's affections was caught in some eddy of the lady's caprice, and he was whirled away from the shore of his hopes, without rudder or compass, into an ocean of mists and storms. It resulted, from this system of conduct, that all that passed between Scythrop and Marionetta consisted in making and unmaking love. He had no opportunity to take measure of her understanding by conversations on general subjects, and on his favourite designs, and being left in this respect to the exercise of indefinite conjecture, he took it for granted, as most lovers would do in similar circumstances, that she had great natural talents, which she wasted at present on trifles, but coquetry would end with marriage, and leave room for philosophy to exert its influence on her mind. Stella had no coquetry, no disguise. She was an enthusiast in subjects of general interest, and her conduct to Scythrop was always uniform, 
or rather showed a regular progression of partiality, which seemed fast ripening into love. End of chapter.